There comes a time in a child's life when we hope and pray that instead of running us to parent, running to us as parents, they run increasingly, uh, or increasingly become more aware of the Heavenly Father's voice and begin to run to Him instead. As a father, I hope that I have the spiritual discernment, the spiritual maturity, the spiritual leadership so that I can help tenderize my daughters to the things of the Spirit, the things of God. I want us to get some context as we get back into the, the narrative here, the story, which is an amazing story, about the calling of God uh, to Samuel. Samuel is basically raised by Eli, the priest, because Samuel's mother, Hannah, in her grief over being unable to bear children, she made a vow to God while offering sacrifice at the temple in Shiloh which is where Joshua established the tabernacle prior to it being moved to Jerusalem before uh, David relocated it. And this is what she said in her deep, deep anguish. 1 Samuel 1. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And Eli heard her make that vow. Over time, God did honor her commitment, and she and her husband Elkanah conceived a son named Samuel, which, love the Hebrew idioms, his name meant or means heard by God. And when Samuel was about three, Hannah and Elkanah bring their toddler to Eli, the priest, in Shiloh. It's about a 15-mile journey through some pretty rough terrain in order to make good on their vow to God. We read this in 1 Samuel 1.24. After Samuel was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the Lord, to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord. I prayed, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked for. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Can you imagine the scene, which I observe all the time being an elementary school principal, of parents when they drop their children off for kindergarten first day? There are hugs, there are tears, there are cameras, and then finally the teacher has to pull the mother or the child off of each other and said, it's time to start school. And the mom says, weeping, I'll see you in three hours, sweetie. Terrible. It's just gut-wrenching scene. Well, in this case, Samuel wouldn't see his mother but once a year. It's probably a three-year-old. For all practical purposes, Samuel was orphaned by design at around the age of three. By the way, if you're going to drop your child off to someone who you're going to put them in the care of, you probably should get references. Now, if Hannah had done that with Eli, would she have still done it? Well, it may not have happened if she knew a little bit more about Eli's stellar performance as a parent. 1 Samuel 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. What makes this an even more profound statement was that they were priests, and they didn't know the Lord. How would you like your child to be characterized by others as worthless? not exactly something you want to be put into the pages of history. But Hannah and Elkanah made a vow to the Lord. 
that their child belonged to him. Can you imagine if we did child dedication, you bring your children up here and the pastor goes through each one and holds them and prays for them and you as parents say, I commit myself to raising this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then parents, you leave and the pastor keeps the children. Oy vey. Wouldn't that be a challenge? This was extreme child dedication in this passage because they were not going to get their child back. He would minister to the Lord before the priest. So we see in 1 Samuel 2.11, And Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy stayed and ministered to the Lord before, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So Samuel enters the priesthood as a very young apprentice. And you have to infuse some realism into the scriptures when you think about a, a three-year-old hanging out in the tabernacle. How many times have you been concerned about some of the items in your home that your children, your young children, may get into? Hot stove? Was there any heat in the tabernacle? Were they barbecuing at all? It was constant. The altar of sacrifice, how long was that burning? Was it hot? What do you think the little child's running around doing? How about the table of showbread in the holy place? Fresh every day. You think he was taking a couple nibbles out of that? What about the altar of incense? You think he was playing with it? Wondering what was in there? Ooh, look at the cute baby lamb. Eli, can I keep her? Right before he taught him how to slit his throat. Imagine a toddler in the tabernacle. And the questions. This man, Eli was not young. Can you imagine a three-year-old running around asking why, 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 why? And tugging on his ropes. That would be quite an interesting scene. Poor old Eli. But this was the situation that he found himself in. One of my favorite track and field events, not that I would run this one because I would probably need oxygen, but one of the favorites that I have to watch in track and field is the 440, the quarter mile race. It's a sprint that involves four individual men or women that run around a track that's a mile. They each take a quarter of that mile. And the fastest runner, usually the most experienced one, runs what's known as the anchor leg. And they run the anchor as the, as the fastest because if their teammates have put them behind the, the lead, that maybe the fastest runner can catch up or help them get back in the, in the lead. Or that he can maintain or she can maintain the lead that was already established. I think raising children is a lot like running the 440. Our children are the baton. And in this race, we, during different phases of our children's lives, we will hand them off. They will be carried by other significant or influential people who will hopefully guide them to the next level of maturity or the next season in their life. We hope and pray that these significant individuals will lead them down the right path in the right direction, but not, unfortunately, this isn't always the case. We do this symbolically, dads, during the wedding ceremony when you symbolically take your daughter's hand and you place it into her groom's hand. Give her away. Here you go. I don't know what I'm going to do when that day comes. I'm going to be a puddle. But isn't that symbolic of what we do in this race? We hand off. So Elkanah, Samuel's father, hands the baton, the trust for his son, Samuel, into Eli's hands. So he could carry Samuel to the next level and raise him to fear and honor the Lord. But again, an imperfect man. Was Eli the best influence for Samuel? 
Well, let's see some of the drama that was going on within the tabernacle. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, Eli, Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, to his sons, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all of these people? No, my son, for the report is not good which I hear the people circulating. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord desired to put them to death, which he did. And that was only one of the aspects of their dishonorable behavior as priests. And the text gives us much more information. So as Eli looks towards the end of his life, his ministry, he's lost the ability to speak into his son's lives. They no longer respect him. They no longer honor him as a priest to the point where God said, I'm going to take them. I'm going to take their lives. We have in contrast to this narrative what's going on with this emerging priest, this apprentice, Samuel. He's becoming a young man, and he's becoming a very honorable young man. 1 Samuel 2.26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor with both the Lord and with men. Now, if you know your Gospels, this sounds awfully familiar because this was also spoken of of another 12-year-old. And if you remember, who was described this way in the Gospel of Luke? It was Christ. Luke 2.52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. What more could be said about our children? They grew in wisdom. They grew in stature. They grew in favor with God and with others. I don't know if there's any more honorable thing that can be said about our children. But we see this of young Samuel. We saw this of the Lord himself. This brings me to the place in the narrative that's portrayed by the skit. And once again, the baton is going to be passed to another. Started out with Elkanah, then it was passed to Eli, and now there's another transition that's going to take place. And most of the skit was centered around 1 Samuel 3, which reads, it happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, and I emphasize this, where the ark of God was. That the Lord that the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And then he ran to Eli, and he said, here I am, for you called me. This particular evening, picture in your mind, this is what movies are made out of. Samuel lay in his bed, probably on a mat on the floor in the tabernacle, near where it says the ark of God was. Smelled, his hair reeked of smoke, maybe burning animal fat. The room diddly lit by the flickering menorah that they kept going. Samuel hears a voice calling to him and just possibly feet away from the Ark of the Covenant, only separated by a curtain. Instinctively, he runs to the second person who's been carrying the baton. He instinctively runs to Eli, his surrogate father. I want to make a couple of observations of what's going on here. Number one, what did the Ark of the Covenant represent to the Jews? What do you think? Anybody? What did it represent? God's, God's presence, absolutely. God's protection. People, even the, the non-Israelis, recognize what this symbol, what this chest of gold meant. We read in 1 Samuel 4, just a chapter after this whole narrative, when the Philistines 
the arch enemy, the, the major nemesis of the Israelis, the Philistines heard the noise of the shout. That is, they were arrayed for battle. So the Israelis decided, we want, a, we want an edge in this war. We want to have a psychological advantage. So what do they do? They take the ark from Shiloh, which Eli allowed them to do, and they bring it into their camp as the Philistines are watching this. And the Philistines heard this noise and they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they saw it. They saw the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid. For they said, get this, God has come into the camp. You imagine this big gold chest carried by who knows how many priests. You always see people, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones and his friend are carrying it by themselves. You think that thing weighed a ton? It was laid over in pure gold. There's no way. This big chest flashing in the noon sun. Overwhelming psychological advantage. But unfortunately, the Jews were using it as kind of a good luck charm, kind of a rabbit's foot. Because later that day, 30,000 Israelis died in battle and the Philistines stole the ark. You talk about humiliation. You talk about defeat. They had the wrong intention. God knows the heart. You think you're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp and you're going to win. But their hearts were not with the Lord. And he allowed the Ark itself to be stolen and 30,000 men to fall. Now, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, check this out. Maybe some of you remember this. The Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to the temple of their god, Dagon, in Ashdod. The next morning, the, t- the, the god Dagon was face down on the ground with head arm, head, hands, and feet chopped off. And that's not all. The next thing God did was he cursed them, the Philistines. And you know what he cursed them with? Anybody know? Hemorrhoids. If I'm lying, I'm dying. So one thing I like about the New American Standard Bible, it's a very wooden translation. It's very literal. It's literally swellings on the anus in other translations. It is in, it, and, and most of you aren't going to remember anything else about this sermon except, hey, did you know God gave them hemorrhoids? Oh, that was fascinating. That was worth the whole trip out of bed. 1 Samuel 5, 9, read it when you get home to your children. God struck the whole place. Can you imagine? Hey, kids, we're, gonna, we're not going to ride our bikes to the temple today to worship Dagon because I'm a little bit sore in the posterior. <laughs> I just love the Lord's sense of humor. It's, most people just read right over that. Had hemorrhoids, for goodness sakes. The whole group is walking around like this. Like a, but anyway, I digress. This is free, by the way. This is part of the, what you paid for today. We go back to Samuel laying there feet away from the ark, the representation of God's presence and God's protection. And in verse 7 it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. That could mean several things. It could be that Eli was such a poor mentor that he never really taught his young apprentice what it meant to know God. Or it could mean that in those days, as the text says in chapter 1, that visions were infrequent, miracles, the word from the Lord was not infrequent. It was the end of the period of the judges. So maybe that Samuel himself had never heard audibly a word from God or had not received an angelic mediator. We don't know for certain. But it simply says that he did not yet know the Lord. So by default, when he hears his voice in the, in the deep watches of the night, who does he run to? He runs to the guy that was given the second leg of the journey, the second leg of the race. He goes to Eli. But Eli wasn't long for this earth because when Eli heard the news about his sons who were killed... Eli, it says he was a very big man. The text says he was fat. 
he fell off his chair backwards over his grief of hearing his sons died and he broke his neck. And that happened just another chapter later. But he wasn't long for this world. God was preparing Samuel to be carried for the remainder of his journey by yet another. He was going to be handed off again. And don't miss the symbolism in this passage. Eli would soon die. Where is Samuel sleeping when he hears his voice? He's sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant, near the presence of God. You remember what happened to Mary and Joseph when Jesus was 12? They took a long journey from Nazareth in Galilee down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. There were huge caravans that would travel, children, men and women, carts, cargo. And after Passover was over, they headed back to Nazareth, thinking that their son, Jesus, was with them. And again, large entourage, they knew a lot of these people because they'd pilgrimage all the time. But where was Jesus? Jesus was sitting in the shadow of Herod's temple, having discussions, having theological debates with the great teachers and the Jewish sages. And suddenly his parents realize that he's missing. So they have to travel all the way back to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 2, it says, His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? I wish I had the, the Jewish mother. Why have you treated us like this, my son? Your father and I, we've been anxious searching for you. Oy vey, the matzah that's not sitting so well in the old pot. Why were you searching for me, he asked. And then he says this, Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? A little bit similar to what Eli picking up here. Eli didn't know God was calling Jesus, did you not know that I wanted to be near my father? Jesus was drawn magnetically to the member of the Trinity, the triune God. He was drawn to his father. This is where I got to be. This is, this is ground zero for me. Center of worship, the place where God dwells for the Jews. 1 Samuel 3, the profound moment when Eli discerns that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, I want you to go lie down again. And, if he, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say this, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. There's not one of you in this room as a parent who doesn't identify with Eli. I'm a little slow. Sometimes it takes me a few trips around the block to figure it out. Eli, in spite of Eli's inability to recognize God's voice, the first two times, God still uses him to eventually authenticate God's voice and presence to Samuel and then make the handoff. Go back, go, go lay back down. Next time you hear his voice, I want you to answer him. Don't come to me. What this really has impacted me, how this has impacted me, is that there comes a time in my daughter's lives when I hope, instead of running to me, that they'll run, or to Rebecca, they'll run to God the Father, to God the Son, that increasingly they can discern his voice from ours. And this is what the path of spiritual maturity, the spiritual adulthood is all about. It's not about me speaking into their lives, being there for them all the time, everywhere, because I know I won't, nor will my wife. But it's about them understanding that God's going to take them the rest of the way and handing it off so that they no longer instantly run to us they start running to him. Dr. Tim Kimmel in his book, Grace-Based Parenting, says it this way, childhood is a time when we should move our children from a position of dependence on us to a position of independence from us and towards dependence on God. 
Everything that we do as parents, as long as they're under our roof, is to prepare them to leave us, is to prepare them to go out beyond our walls and beyond our influence. But we have these years to pour into them. But we also know that during this period of time, there are other people coming across their path, for good or for ill, that are going to lead them. They're going to take this and walk with them the rest of the way. Why is it important that we hand off? Instead of tightening our grip around our children as they go to and say, don't leave me. Others of you are saying, I can't wait till they leave. But instead of tightening our grip around them, why is it important to let them go? Well, I'll tell you. Because God the Father, God the Son will never leave them. That's one of the last things Jesus said. Lo, I am with you, what? Always, even unto the end of the age. I will walk this path. I will be the one to carry them on the anchor leg of the 440. I will be there. As parents, we can't make that promise to them. I can't make my promise to my daughter, to my stepdaughter, that I will be there for the rest of their lives. I can't make that. I lost my mom when I was 23. She dropped dead one night. My daughter lost her mom when she was three. We live frail, fragile lives, don't we? I want her, and I want her to understand who's going to take them the rest of the way and begin making that handoff a little bit at a time and saying, I want you to know someone who will walk with you in the deepest, darkest places when I can't be there. I want to, but I may not always be. I want that to be your Heavenly Father. C.S. Lewis, I have to bring him up. Chronicles of Narnia, the Silver Chair. Amazing visual here. I want you to create this in your mind. Jill encounters Aslan, the messianic lion figure, for the first time. She is dying of thirst, and she comes upon a stream, and there he is, Aslan, right next to the water's edge. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream said the lion. Powerful, powerful. The thirst in my daughter's soul, in my stepdaughter's soul, can never and will never be quenched by anyone other than the Lord himself. Not by us as parents, not by friends, not even by future spouses. There's only one well from which they can drink. There is only one source of living water. That's the one. There is no other stream. That is our responsibility, men and women. That is our role as parents is to say, I must decrease. 
my voice must become fainter. And I want them to be pointed to one whose voice needs to become louder and louder and louder to make the handoff. As much as it's hard to let go of this, because it's trust. Just as Hannah and Elkanah had to let go, I give you my son. And even though Eli was not necessarily the most trustworthy mentor and baton carrier, God used him for a time until God said, I want you to hear my voice now, and I want you to go the rest of the journey with me. And that's the way it has to be. Let's bow prayer. Father, I can't speak for everyone here, but I reek of inadequacy. I recognize my limits. And I also can sense that parade of failures going through the window of my mind. Um, I have failed to be the perfect dad that I thought I was going to be. But in my imperfection and in my lack of grace and, and love and truth, you are calling and your voice is getting louder and louder in my daughter's lives. Father, may that be the case for the rest of their lives. As long as you give me and my wife breath, would you help us to speak truth and help us to hand off, let go of the baton, give it to someone else, to you, who will lead them. Would you also bring other baton carriers into their lives who will be trustworthy, who will be good men and women, who love you, who honor you, whose joy and and pleasure is to serve their king. Father, we want to decrease, and we want them to begin waking up in the night and saying, Father, speak to me, I'm listening. That's our prayer. Help us through that, Father, because it's hard. We're so controlling. We want to give that up to you today. Thank you for the story of Samuel. Thank you for the amazing ministry he had during a very difficult time in Israel's history. Um, You have called us to do the same. May your grace guide us in this process. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming today. You're dismissed.